All right. In the last couple of months, it's been difficult for me to introduce this man without using World Wrestling Federation champion, Dirty Dog Hogan. Here we are at WrestleMania 4 this afternoon. You got an opportunity to change that. Oh, yeah. It's been hard to live with that man. Fee-fi-fo. Thumb, Captain Obvious. One long year. Your time has come, man. No marks. No scars. No blemishes on the dog, brother. But inside, man... I've been scarred inside for one long year. Everywhere I go, all the little dogs ask me, is there any truth to the fact that there's a controversial account? Dog, did you really get him over your head? Did you really beat Captain Obvious? Well, today, man, at WrestleMania 4, we're going to wipe all that controversy out. Captain Obvious, in the second round, when you're fresh as a daisy, with the whole world watching, I'm going to prove, brother, that I can beat ya anywhere, anytime. And all my little dogs, they're going to feel it, too. Speaking of the dogs, Dirty Dog Hogan, we have seen them here in Atlantic City. I know millions of others are watching very intently around the world. Yeah, if you look in their eyes, man, you've seen that fear in all those little dogs. They realize why I get Captain Obvious in the launch position when I slam him through the Trump Plaza, brother. From New York down to Tampa, Florida, the fault line's going to break off. And when Captain Obvious falls into the ocean, as my next two opponents fall on the ocean floor, and I pin them, so well Donald Trump and all the Hulkamaniacs and all the dirty dogs. But when Donald Trump hangs on the top of the Trump Plaza with his family under his other arm, as he sinks to the bottom of the sea, thank God Donald Trump listens to Main Event Status Radio. He'll know enough to let go of his materialistic possessions, hang on to his wife and kids, dog pedal his life all the way back to safety. But Donald. If something happens, you run out of gas. And all those dogs run out of gas. Just hang on to the largest back in the world. How dog paddle us, backstroke us to safety. Oh, thank you, dirty dog hogging. Let's get back to action. Whoa. <laughs> hey, dirty dog, I hear you calling. I think it's time for the show. Sleepholes has got me confused, but maybe here we go. Mr. Hills and the dog from Maine, Event Status Radio. They're recording again. <laughs> Bagels and biceps all over my screen. What are we supposed to do? Live from the internet waves and recorded live over the Skype machine, there are two things we do chew bubblegum and talk professional wrestling, and we're all out of bubblegum. I'm the Dirty Dog Darcy, this is Main Event Status Radio, and today on the podcast, we're talking about the makings of a great professional wrestler. Why, you ask? 
on the 290th episode of the Still Real Duel show, released on September 3rd, Captain Obvious mentioned when he was talking to Jeff Peck that Captain believes Seth Rollins is the best is the best professional wrestler right now in the WWE. So the man to talk about Seth Rollins and the great professional wrestlers is a man that has style and grace and a pretty face. He is Captain Obvious. Captain, what's happening? Well, I may have a pretty face, but that face is definitely made for radio and podcasting. Hence why my TV career has not taken off yet. But not much. Just here to enjoy some uh, professional wrestling talk and uh, kind of dissect what makes a great pro wrestler, I guess. Uh, yeah, I know, as I noted in the intro that, and through text in the last week, week and a half or so, that on the on the podcast a few weeks back, I think it was a edition where you and Jeff were dissecting SummerSlam and NXT TakeOver, that you mentioned that Seth Rollins is probably the best professional wrestler in the WWE today, that you see him as the quote-unquote total package. Can you, uh, can you go more in-depth on why you feel that Seth Rollins is the total package? Well, when I watched that match that he had with Cena, you know, in the unification match, you know, kind of the world title, U.S. title thing, I mean, he showed me something in that match that I hadn't seen. He showed some strength. And for the last year or so, we knew he was a great athlete. We knew he was a great technical wrestler. We knew he could do the high-flying the high flying stuff. But when he did the kind of the copy of John Cena, when he rolled through and was able to scoop Cena up and then hoist him onto his shoulders and then hit the AA out of it, you know, it, it kind of showed that he now has the strength as well to compete with the bigger guys. And we already knew what his promo skills were, so it's kind of like in baseball to have the five-tool player, you know, hit for high average, power, speed, uh, fielding, you know, all those tools. When you look at Seth Rollins, he now has the power to go with his speed and go with his technical skills, and his promo ability is much improved over where it was a few years ago. When you combine all those things up, that's why right now, to me, he is the best pro wrestler in not just WWE, but in the world today, because he's maybe not the best at everything, but he's high enough on every list that overall makes him the best one. I know something that intrigued me initially when I heard you and Jeff dissecting SummerSlam was you compared Seth Rollins to Neville, which yeah intrigued me that you mentioned that Rollins can, yeah, they said Rollins can do... Most of the flying moves that Neville can can do, and like you said, that he's he's starting to do some of the power spots that Cena has done. Cena at SummerSlam 2015. I guess why compare Seth Rollins to Adrian Neville? Well, what happened was somebody on Twitter when I put that out there that I thought he was the best wrestler in the world. Somebody came back and said, "No, Adrian Neville is," and I said, "You know, I use that as my comparison because everybody talks about how great Neville is." you know, flying around the ring. And I'm like, you know, Rollins is busting out the Phoenix splash, which is not an easy move, even for a cruiserweight to do. But here's a guy who's 230 pounds and probably six foot two, six foot three that can bust out and do that, you know, crazy Phoenix splash fly around the ring, but yet still has the strength to pick up a guy like John Cena. So when people throw out the smaller guys, like a Neville, like somebody else, say, well, he's the best wrestler. I'm like, yeah, but he can't do that power stuff that Rollins has implemented into his game, which to me makes Rollins higher on the list. 
And I know you mentioned about the power spot that Rollins did in the SummerSlam match against Cena. Was there any other power spots that you've seen Rollins do either in that match or the weeks following SummerSlam that impressed you? Well, it's not so much just it's it's not so much the weeks after that. It's just that when you see him in the ring, even with a Brock Lesnar or John Cena or now with Sting, you know, with the stuff with Sting, he doesn't look out of place physically matching up with those bigger guys. It's not like when you saw like Rey Mysterio back in his heyday, you see him in the ring with, you know, the big show or something like that. And you're like, there's no way in the world a guy that size can compete with a guy the size of, you know, the, the, the heavyweights Rollins doesn't look out of place. So physically you look at him, you go, okay, I can, you know, if him and John Cena are fighting and we all know how strong John Cena is, if they're head to head, the believability factor is still there that Rollins physically strength wise can compete with a John Cena where if you see Neville in the ring, like we saw during the U S open challenge, Neville physically, you know, can't match strength with John Cena. So that's why it kind of lends more credence to my, my ranking, I guess. I know you said that that Rollins is pretty good on the mic. What things what things have has Rollins done on the mic that caught your ear? That you mentioned previous on times you've been on the podcast that you're that you're an indie wrestling manager in the house. You're a podcast co-host. Are those, I guess, one? Yeah. What things has Rollins done on the mic that has impressed you? And two, as a wrestling manager and a podcast co-host, what things do you look for on somebody on a, on the mic that a normal, I guess, a uh, somebody who isn't an internet mark or, or whatnot, doesn't catch. Well, it, for one, to me, it's the little things. And I know people always kind of bring up, you know, talk about the, the, your great promo guys, like your Paul Heymans and, you know, Ric Flair's and Dusty Rhodes and Roddy Piper's. It's the believability factor. You have to believe what you're saying in that moment. It's actually, if if you go back and, and, and like, do some research and, and read about um, not just, wrestling but in acting and other things it's you really have to believe what you're saying you want to have it feel organic and not scripted or you know not like somebody's in your ear telling you what to say you go back to the attitude era and people talk about the rock and stone cold steve austin and mick foley back in those days you know they didn't really have a script they had kind of some bullet points they wanted to hit and then fill in the blanks modern wrestling Everything seems to be more scripted, but when Rollins gets on the mic, you can kind of tell that he knows where he wants to go with what he has to say. Other guys get on the mic and they kind of ramble and meander on and they miss their points. And after listening to them talk for three or four minutes, you're like, I I really don't feel like anything was accomplished by listening to this. Plus the other little things like making sure that if you're the bad guy, that you don't want the fans to start to like you because you're cool and edgy. You know, you think of Kevin Nash and Scott Hall in the NWO. Well, they're bad guys, but yet Scott Hall had a catchphrase. You can't really, like, having a catchphrase is an easy way for people to start to like you, and you lose that heat factor. You lose that bad guy thing. You know, Ric Flair had a couple of, of catchphrases, but during his promo leading up to it, you know, you still hated him for what he was saying and how he was treating the crowd and how he was treating his opponents. You know, Rollins does all of those things really well. Like he makes sure he makes fun of the fans. He tells you how much he dislikes his opponents. 
But when he's talking, he has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Everything kind of flows together. And when he's done talking, you know exactly what he was there to accomplish. And uh, did you see any of these qualities in Seth Rollins when he for when he first debuted at, uh, in the Shield up to him winning the WWE title at this past WrestleMania? No, that's the, that's the amazing thing. And I was telling me and Jeff Peck were talking about this a, a couple months ago off air that you know me and Jeff and Eric Garzullo, who used to be the co-host of the Still Real Twitter Show, Real, Still Real Twitter Show, who runs Camel Clutch, uh, runs the Camel Clutch blog. Uh, Wrestle Chat Brett, the four of us did a show and we were talking about different young guys and where they were going to go in the future and we were we brought the shield and almost unanimously all four of us thought Roman Reigns would be a star we all thought Dean Ambrose was going to be a star but we were split on Seth Rollins and I compared Seth Rollins to a young Edge when Edge was in the brood and when Edge and Christian first broke away you know a lot of people would have never bought Edge being a multiple-time world champion and the most decorated wrestler in WWE history. But it was a process. He evolved over time. When Rollins came in with The Shield, he didn't do a lot of the talking. Ambrose did most of the talking. Reigns had his little Hulk smash type stuff. But Rollins was always kind of in the background. You know, Everybody thought Ambrose would be the breakout star. Ambrose, if they split The Shield, would be the top heel. And when they split it with Rollins... You were like, a lot of people were taken aback by, really, like Seth Rollins? We didn't know he had the verbal capabilities. He didn't really show it in Ring of Honor. He didn't really show it so much in NXT. But there was something there just waiting to come out, and he's really, over the last year and a half, elevated his game. Just seems like month by month by month, he just gets better and better and better to the point now where, obviously, he's the top heel in WWE, and he's, I mean, you got a pay-per-view and he's wrestling John Cena and Sting. I mean, how many other guys can say they wrestled two future Hall of Famers on the same show in the same night? I mean, it's an impressive feat. Well, just to be a wise guy, I can say Chris Jericho, but that's a completely yeah. different subject. Yeah. But, but Jericho, is, Jericho is in the same vein as Seth Rollins was. Jericho, in his prime, had the ability to fly around the ring. He had the ability to match strength with some guys. I mean, he was never going to match up with, like, The Rock physically. That's why he uses speed. But when you saw him in the room with Triple H or Stone Cold, you believe that that fight could actually happen. And then Jericho on the mic was gold. And Rollins is in that same vein as Jericho. He may not have the comedy aspect that Jericho had, but he does have the same presentation ability that Jericho had. Uh, I don't know, you know, going back to Rollins in The Shield, that I started to notice – Something different about Seth Rollins, I can't really, still can't put my finger on it. Approached the months after the two months after SummerSlam when the Shield had their the two match pay per view matches with Evolution, the six man tags, and I guess I was just you know up to WrestleMania 30, like like what you said, Captain. That I thought you know Ambrose was going to be when, when they break, Shield breaks up, Ambrose was going to be the you know number one heel, you know. Roman Reigns might become, you know, the next Hulk Hogan or the next John Cena years down the road when, you know, they shine him up a little bit better and, you know, have him work on some more of his wrestling ability or his promo ability or whatnot. But I never really gave Seth Rollins much of a, much of an afterthought besides, you know, besides that. I guess, where, did you notice anything of Seth Rollins a couple months you know, between WrestleMania 30 and night after payback when he turned on? Shield, the shield. 
it wasn't so much I noticed it in him because even then, like they, they gradually gave him a little more mic time, you know, when they were doing their little, little promos. But it was the presentation that the broadcasters were giving, calling him the architect, calling him the brainchild. You know, it was his brainchild was the shield. You know, it kind of like started reminding me a little bit of the Triple H stuff with the cerebral assassin and, you know, putting these different groups together, whether it was, you know, reforming DX after Shawn Michaels left or the, the you know, the corporation or the or the uh, the corporate ministry or then later on evolution, you know. He was always the thinking man's wrestler, and that's where they were kind of positioning Rollins as being more cerebral than Ambrose and Reigns. And you can see that now in their presentation where, you know, Rollins tries to outthink his opponents, where Ambrose has is just crazy and Reigns is like the you know fiery, angry guy. You know, Rollins tries to outthink his opponents. Like, he kind of plays it like a chessboard. And when they started present, you know, pre, uh, presenting it that way, I kind of knew something was up. Now, did I think that it would be him that turned on Ambrose and Reigns? No, I thought Ambrose was going to turn on him and, and, and Reigns. But when it happened, you know, it made sense in the sense that, you know, if, if I'm a guy like Triple H who's known as being, you know, very cerebral in my approach, why wouldn't I pick a guy to kind of be my protege than a guy who's very cerebral as well? So, it was the positioning that WWE was presenting him in that made the most sense. Okay. Well, for now, let's back away a little bit from Seth Rollins. And I want to talk to you about some things that we look and look for in a wrestler to be considered great. I guess, you know, things like main eventing network events or pay-per-views or DVD sales before the network or merchandise and all that. What things do you take into account to consider a, professional wrestler or one of the best if not the best today well the first thing i look for is do you have a look like when i see you are my eyes drawn to you is there something about you that makes me want to see what you're going to do next whether you call it the it factor or or whatever you know you have to have something about you that makes you look like a professional wrestler you know it's kind of like you look at, you know, go back to Mick Foley. One of the things that they always say about Mick Foley was he never had the look. He never had the body type. Kevin Owens, Dusty Rhodes, they didn't have the quote-unquote look. But there was something about their presence that still made you want to see what they were going to do next. You know, you watch the independent wrestling scene. I was just at a show last night. And there are certain guys when I'm watching an independent wrestling show that I'm like, okay, that guy looks like a pro wrestler and that guy looks like a guy that just came out of the bar and walked into the ring. You know, that's my number one thing is the look. You have to have that presentation. You have to be larger than life, but not so larger than life that you're not believable. You know, you want to have CM Punk, not a big guy, but there's something about his presence when you see him that makes you want to watch what he was going to do. I don't. I know you mentioned Dusty Rhodes. That I feel like one thing about Dusty Rhodes is, like you said, is how he carried himself. Like either on promos or in the ring or walking back and forth to the ring or to the back. That Dusty, you know, wasn't the skinniest of guys. He wasn't the most athletic of guys, but he carried himself that to the point that when he fought Ric Flair. We all knew he could hang. You know, CM Punk, when he was in the ring with 
John Cena, we know he can hang. And you know, with Kevin Owens, we know that when he's facing John Cena, we know he can hang. It's it's like they have an inner confidence that kind of comes out, a swagger, whatever you want to call it. You look at guys that really, you know, people talk about Zack Ryder, Jack Swagger, guys who are great wrestlers but haven't gotten over. And you look at him and go, well, does Zack Ryder really exude star quality, you know, that presence? I don't think he does. Jack Swagger, tremendous athlete, you know, a, a, you know, tremendous amateur wrestler. But when you see him, does he just exude that presence that makes you want to watch him? I don't think he does. And for me, it's heartbreaking because the guy was trained by one of my favorite wrestlers of all time, Dr. Steve Williams. But he doesn't. But look at like I like Ted DiBiase. Even before he had the million dollar man gimmick, when he was wrestling in NWA and Mid South, he always had that presence that you want to see what he was going to do because he just had that quality about him that makes you want to watch him and watch what he's going to do next. And it's, it's like a natural leadership quality, but a silent way in a sense. And, and that's one of those, it's just, you either have it or you don't, and it can't really be manufactured. I know we kind of talked to some about like the ability on the mic. Do you also like consider like crowd reaction, crowd reaction in with being considered one of the best wrestlers? I do factor it in because you you have to the in the independents. I tell the guys that I work with, and I haven't been doing this very long. You know, I've only been in the independent scene for like a year, but I've been a student of wrestling for over thirty years. I mean, I've read autobiographies. I've watched. I watch it for the science of it. You know, it's kind of like the show Bar Rescue. The guy breaks down the science of bars and how they work. I've always done that. I've always wanted to try to figure out why a certain wrestler can get a reaction and a certain wrestler can't. And I tell the guys all the time, you either want to be loved or you want to be hated. If you fall in the middle, you're dead in the water because then the crowd's like, "Eh, if he wins great. And if he loses great, I really, they don't get emotionally invested. And the ability to talk on the microphone is like having a great storyteller. And if you can, if, and think about this, like when people are telling you stories, whether they're your friends or coworkers or whatever, you always have that one friend, they start telling you a story, and no matter what they say, you're just glued to whatever they have to say because of the way they present it. And then you have another friend who will tell you the same story, and about two minutes into it, you're like, oh my God, just get to the point already. And that factors into wrestling as well because when a guy comes out and he grabs a microphone, he might have the look, but if he starts talking and within a couple minutes you're falling asleep or you're like, God, I wonder what's going on in the football game or you know, back in the, the heydays of the Monday Night Wars, God, this guy's talking. I, what, what's going on on WCW right now or you know, vice versa? Y- you want those people kind of glued into what you have to say and, and make it important. It's kind of like the old uh, E.F. Hutton thing. You know, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. It, it's the same thing. You know, people talk about John Cena not being great on the microphone, but when he's talking, you tend to pay attention. Whether you like it or you don't like it, you're still paying attention to what he has to say. I guess another thing that I kind of look look for in a wrestler is their wrestling ability. I feel like, you know, in the 80s and 90s and the early part of the 2000s, we didn't, fans didn't mind guys like Hulk Hogan, you know, that couldn't really wrestle that great. Or, you know, or current day John Cena had the quote-unquote five moves of doom or whatnot. I guess 
does the wrestlability really matter for you to consider a wrestler great? It, it does, but it's not so much in the sense of technical acumen. It's more about can you do you feel what he's doing in the ring? Hulk Hogan may not have been a great wrestler, but when he was in the ring, he could sell that he was getting destroyed by somebody. You know, you go back and you think about when uh, Earthquake and Dino Bravo attacked him on the Brother Love Show, and he had his ribs broken, or when King Kong Bundy attacked him, you know, and he came out and he was selling that rib injury. And even though you knew Hulk Hogan supposedly was almost invincible, it created that illusion that in that moment he was vulnerable. So during the match, when Bundy or Earthquake or Andre the Giant or somebody was beating on him, you know, you, you actually started to question yourself, is Hogan really going to win this match? And I think that's the key to, like, the bigger guys. You know, whether it's a big show, Hogan, you know, even now, you know, Kane, Undertaker. You know, Undertaker's matches at WrestleMania, people talk about those. And we would sit there for, you know, me and Jeff been doing the show for four years. And go back to the Shawn Michaels matches, the Triple H matches. We all knew Undertaker was going to win. But those matches were great because during that match, the almost... It, you you questioned yourself as to whether or not he was actually going to win in that moment. Even the CM Punk match at WrestleMania 29, I think it was. Yeah, you know, you questioned whether or not Punk was going to win that match because Undertaker was selling that he was getting the crap beat out of him by CM Punk. You know, it, it, that's what that's what made 30 so amazing when Brock Lesnar beat him was it was like whoa. We've been questioning this for the last five or six years, and it finally happened. And we've seen him pull himself out, and he didn't do it in this one moment. When it gets to the smaller guys, it, the, the wrestling ability does kind of factor in the technique and stuff because, you know, when you're a smaller guy, you have to make up for your lack of strength in other ways. And so you need to be technically sound. But the key is still sell your ass off. Dolph Ziggler is the best seller in wrestling. Every move he gets hit with looks like he's getting destroyed. And then that makes you get emotionally invested when he makes his comeback. And, and that's what draws you in to watch those matches. So it kind of depends on your size and what who you are in your presentation when it comes to your wrestling ability. Now I, now I like to talk with some wrestlers from over the years and talk about what kind of what factors that they had that made them considered to one considered as one of the greats. Um, the first guy I want to talk about is Roddy Piper. I feel like you'd be one of the better guys to have on, better guests to have on to talk about Roddy Piper. This is the second podcast I've recorded since he passed away. I guess I want to get your, first get your thoughts on when you first heard about the news that Piper passed away, and then I'd like to talk, talk to you about what what Piper had to be had him be considered as one of the greats in the 80s. Uh, well, when I heard he passed away, it, it kind of broke my heart. I mean, Piper is one of those guys I grew up watching. I've always been a guy who rooted for the villain because, you know, physically, I was never the strongest kid. I was a, I was the fat kid growing up, the chubby kid. So physically, I could never fight, you know, like the jocks or the big, tough, strong guys. But I could always outsmart them. And that's the way most villains are. Like Lex Luthor physically can't beat up Superman, but he can outsmart Superman. 
you know, the Joker physically can't beat up Batman, but he can try to outthink him or outclever him or outsmart him. And that's why I always felt with wrestling. You know, Roddy Piper, when you saw him in the ring with Hulk Hogan, Hogan towered above him. But you always felt like Piper might be able to outsmart him or outthink him. And so growing up, I always rooted for Piper. I just loved his energy. I loved his charisma. I loved the way that he could elicit a crowd response without even really having to say anything if he didn't want to. He could just give the crowd a look. And, you know, when I was piecing together my indie persona, I I take bits and pieces from the guys I idolized growing up, and Piper was one of them. And Piper's performance on a microphone was second to none. I mean, that, that the most depressing thing about losing Dusty Rhodes and losing Roddy Piper is we lost two of the best talkers in the history of wrestling in, in a matter of two weeks. Um, and they're polar opposites. You know, Dusty could get the crowd on his side quickly. Piper could do the opposite. Um, but, you know, losing Piper is, is a shame because, you know, talking is a lost art in wrestling. And when you have a guy like Piper that is an invaluable treasure chest, of wrestling knowledge and and losing him and not being utilized fully the way he should have been. And and Piper probably doesn't get the credit he deserves as well. It was really, was tragic. I know you talk about Piper not giving the credit he deserves. I was thinking about it since Piper passed away about a month or so ago. I feel like if it wasn't for Piper, I don't know how successful WrestleMania and Hulkamania would have been for those first early years that, I feel like, you know, in the WWF in the mid-80s, Piper was was a Lex Luthor to Hulk Hogan's Superman. That, you know, in, for WrestleMania, you know, Piper was in the main event. For WrestleMania 2, it was him and Mr. T in the boxing matches. Boxing match was one of the matches people wanted to watch. You know, WrestleMania 3 in his retirement match against Adrian Adonis. Do you feel like Piper gets the credit that he deserves to help build or help start out WrestleMania and Hulkamania in the mid eighties. No, I don't. I mean, I don't think he does. I think. I mean, when people talk about the WrestleMania, they talk about the genius of Vince McMahon and and the the back. You know, built. You know, WrestleMania is built with the genius of Vince McMahon and the strength in the back of Hulk Hogan. And I tell people, I'm like, that's true in a sense because you have to have that great hero. You have to have that conquering hero that fans know inevitably is going to come out on top. But you can't have a great hero unless you have a great villain and you know, like you said, Superman, Lex Luthor, Batman, Joker, you know, you always have that, tr- that great foil to every hero. Piper was perfect in that role because fans really wanted to see Piper get beat up. And that's the big thing about wrestling. If you have, you can have a great hero, but if he doesn't have, if you don't have somebody in the ring that you want to see that hero vanquish, then you lose interest. And Piper was that great adversary to Hogan that made people tune in. I mean, if to me was, I really was not a fan of that WrestleMania main event because, you know, I don't really like celebrities being involved in wrestling because they kind of take away from the guys in performing their art form. I mean, if you could just have Hogan versus Piper one-on-one for the world championship at WrestleMania one, that would have been enough. But then you factor in Mr. T and you factor in Paul Orndorff, you know, two great sidekicks in a sense to Hogan and Piper. It, it really did make that match. People want to tune in because people want to see Mr. T get his hands on Piper. People want to see Hogan get his hands on Piper. And then Orndorff was that great buffer zone that they both had to kind of go through to get to Piper. So I think that's what made it really great. But Piper was that fuel 
for Hogan's fire that started Hulkamania and that lasted all those years. You mentioned Dusty Rhodes a little bit earlier, and that's another guy I wanted to talk about. For me, you know, a lot, a lot with Piper, I don't know much about Dusty Rhodes. When I grew up, you know, in the mid '90s, I knew Dusty Rhodes as a color commentator that that spoke a little funny with his lips and couldn't really pronounce words too too great, just like I. I guess. Well, what what it factor did Dusty Rhodes have? And yeah, I like to get your thoughts on Dusty Rhodes from you know his whole career. Well, Dusty, when I first started watching wrestling, was probably around eighty three, eighty four, and that was right around the time that Magnum TA you know, had his car wreck. Magnum TA was positioned to be the next, you know, breakout star in wrestling. I mean, it was he was going to be the guy that he was going to be the Hulk Hogan of WCW, NWA back in those, those days. There's going to be Flair, you know, versus Magnum TA. You know, then you had Hogan versus Piper, and then later Hogan versus Savage. Magnum TA had his car wreck, and then Dusty, being the stalwart that he is, kind of stepped up and took that role. Dusty could draw crowds in no matter where he was whether he's working in florida whether he's coming into memphis to wrestle jerry lawler whether he was down in georgia it didn't matter where dusty was people want to see dusty because he was entertaining you know physically not a, doesn't look like a wrestler in the ring not a great move set you know it's about john cena five moves of doom dusty probably had four you know but he had that swagger and he had that charisma and he had that fighting spirit that people could relate to being kind of the out of shape underdog, you know, and, and he would get on a microphone and he talked so differently than what the traditional wrestler spoke like that you were just glued listening to him. And you go back and you watch those promos from the eighties and nineties, you know, he, he had the ability to just draw you in and, and believe every word that was coming out of his mouth and fire you up as a fan that I have to go out and support this guy because he needs my support. You know, you don't feel that now. You know, there, there are guys get a microphone and start talking, and you're just like, oh, my God, I, I, I kind of hope you do get beat up because you're annoying me. Dusty, even with the lisp and even with the weird language, just had that ability to, to like, push his energy through the TV and into you when you were watching it and, and just make you feel like you were needed to be at that show. And th I don't think there are very few people in the history of wrestling that could do what Dusty did. I feel like, I feel like the next guy that I like to talk to about, talk about and bring up is ways of kind of a combination of Roddy Piper on the craziness aspect, but, you know, it, but able to perform night in and night out like Piper was that smart man, Randy Savage to me, he his 80s and early 90s promos were the gr some of the greatest. I remember his uh, Cup of Coffee in the Big Leagues promo on Ricky Steamboat after he lost the Intercontinental title at yeah to Ricky Steamboat that, that you know Steamboat winning the Intercontinental title will be his cup of, cup of coffee in the Big Leagues and another promo you know that the cream you know cream of the crop you know nobody does it better than the Macho Man and he came across you know in in the 80s in the WWF and then 90s in WCW that he was crazy. You know, he was loony and at any moment he's going to snap and yeah, do what he needs to do to get to his opponent and kill him. I guess, what's your thoughts on the Macho Man? Well, the Macho Man, when I first started watching him uh, when he first debuted, it, it wasn't too long before he actually won 
Beater Connell Tile from Tito Santana. So it wasn't I didn't know that much about him before that run there. <clears throat> but Macho Man evolved over time. You know, in the beginning, during that steamboat time, he wasn't the crazy macho man. He was kind of calculated and, and methodical, you know, when he wrestled. And then, you know, he, he kind of evolved over time and became the madness. And a lot of the madness stuff was just from his outfits. You know, he had the the you know the big cowboy hat on the jacket with the tassels and then you know it just kind of kept evolving more and more and more and that was the great thing about savage is that he could evolve with the times you know during the early 80s it was about image and presentation thinking like miami vice and shows like that where as a middle class blue collar guy you dreamed of like living in miami florida and riding around on on speed boats and doing and wearing the blazer with the t-shirt underneath it. you you thought about that lifestyle and said that and savage personified that and then you got into the late 80s and, and the early 90s and it became more about just being colorful and you know ultimate warrior-esque and savage did that and then you got into the 90s with the nwo era and more about the gang mentality and tough guy and just fighting and savage morphed into that so that was a great thing about Savage there. The promo stuff early on, Savage was not a great talker. You know, he would kind of mumble a lot of stuff and you couldn't really understand it with a deep gravelly voice, but he got better over time. And a lot of it, people don't really know this. You know, you talk about the, uh, you know, the cup of coffee promo, but then the cream of the crop promo. I remember Savage doing that, you know, busting off the, the tower of power too sweet to be sour. He stole that from dusty. But it worked with his character because there was such a div- division in the country between WWE fans and NWA fans that a lot of WWE fans didn't know what the NWA, NWA guys were saying and vice versa. So you could borrow from one guy to the other and, and people didn't really catch on to it unless you were a you know, diehard fan of both. But Macho Man, you know, the ability to, you know, the funny thing is when he's with WCW, people thought he was over the hill and then he had a, a six year run there and was a great wrestler and could have great matches with guys half his age and, and, or wrestle a guy like the giant who was a rookie and green as grass and probably could, shouldn't be, have been in the ring and make him look good. So Savage had that package of the promo stuff like we talked about that got better over time, the look and the in-ring ability and, and really pulled it all together up until like in, into his late forties and early fifties. And another guy that I w- would like to talk with a, I guess, kind of like you said, with Macho pulling stuff from Dusty, is Hulk Hogan. And I feel like Hogan, without Hogan, I don't know if Russell would have had the boom that it had in the 80s and the 90s. What ways did the Hulkster connect with the crowd, in your opinion? Hogan, for me, and this is going to me when I was a kid, the reason I got into wrestling, and I've talked about some on our show and probably other shows as well, is I was a, I was a comic book fan. I loved Superman. I loved Batman. You know, all those guys. But I knew I knew those guys weren't real. But then when I turned on TV one day and I see this guy in bright yellow and, and red and he was larger than life, you know, six foot seven, six foot eight, 300 pounds, muscles everywhere, you know, and talking about good American values. Like say your prayers, train, take your vitamins, all that stuff. I was like, wow, this guy's kind of like what Superman was talking about, you know, and here he is fighting all the villains and even though the villain might get the upper hand he was always the conquering hero he was a real life superhero and that's what one of the things that got me hooked into wrestling and i think 
the ability to even a guy his size and still based on the story still look like an underdog and come out on top is what got people in because you know he was a great he was a good talker i mean i mean that's obviously i mean here he is 30 years later and he's still getting jobs as pitchmen you know you can't be the front you know the the ad guy for a product unless you can talk and here it is 30 years later hogan's still getting these gigs and because when he grabbed the microphone you listened now there are parts of it that were corny and cheesy and we all make fun of it now but the promos themselves and talking about the guy he's fighting and why he's fighting him and no matter what that guy does to him based on what the fans do for me i'm going to come out on top that's one of those dusty-esque things that he could draw you in and make you believe what was going on i mean heck when he was attacked by earthquake <laughs> and they had him in the hospital bed and they had a thing where you could write letters to Hulk Hogan for support. The guy got over like thing like five hundred thousand cards and letters from fans. Could you imagine that now, John Cena? Like you know, John Cena gets hurt. You know, we saw that whole thing with you know Seth Rollins breaking his nose. Do you think John Cena would have got five hundred thousand people to write him a card or a letter? No, it's not going to happen. But Hulk Hogan did that back in nineteen eighty five, I think it was, or eighty six. It was incredible that people took time out of their day to sit down and write Hulk Hogan a letter hoping for a speedy recovery and that when he comes back I want you to beat the crap out of that guy earthquake the counterpoint or I guess yeah the counterpoint to the WWF's Hulk Hogan was Ric Flair in the 80s for the NWA one thing I or a couple things I appreciate about Ric Flair was he was the definition of the traveling world champion in the mid to late 80s you know traveling to WCCW to Mid-South to out to Portland or wherever else he was needed to wrestle that that territory's top star, bring out a great match out of whoever he needs to, even a broomstick if needed, to yeah put on the, the great matchup people would expect out of him. You know, just like you know all the guys that we talked about so far, Flair was able to talk in the mic to get people riled up to put their money down to see a Dusty Rhodes, a Hulk Hogan, or whoever else, come in and beat him up in the ring and to try to take the world title away from him. What was it about Ric Flair that made him one of the greats to grace the reign in the 80s and the 90s? Well, the first thing was Ric Flair, you know, the funny, people don't know this. Ric Flair, when he first broke in, wanted to be rambling Ricky Rhodes. He wanted to be Dusty Rhodes. And Dusty was like, no, nah, no, nah, you got to be yourself. You know, you got to be somebody else. You could be better than this. And they came up with the whole Ric Flair persona. And he lived his persona. And, and probably to his detriment a bit later on in life. But Flair lived his gimmick. And he was the guy that every guy wanted to be but didn't admit they wanted to be. Every guy to this day, I don't care if you're... You know, 20 years old, you want to be that flashy, pretty boy that women just fawn over and just throw themselves at and be so cocky and arrogant that you can get away with it. And he presented that. And like you said, you know, NWA back in those days in the early 80s, you know, he traveled around and he was perfect for that because he go to a territory like go to Texas and wrestle Kerry Von Erich in front of like 80,000 people 
and, and make Kerry Von Erich look like a great wrestler. And, you know, he Von Erich beat him, won the NWA title, and then Flair got it back. But he would travel around and make whoever the top guy was in that territory look like, wow, that guy almost beat Ric Flair. Well, what happens is when Flair leaves, the fans are still going to come and see that top guy in their area because of how good Flair made them look. You know, so Flair would make each area a ton of money when he would come in. And then you had the factor in the whole horseman thing. You know, he just had that whole package of being the character, the in-ring ability, and the look, the whole thing. And and to this day, I mean, you see Flair now on TV, 60-some-odd years old, and, and he still has that presence about him that when he gets in the ring and starts talking, people just listen because the guy is just, you know, an incredible talent. And, and you know, just... Uh, he's he's a uh, if if you have national treasures in wrestling, Flair's still a national treasure. You brought up the the Horseman, and there's a, a, another cornerstone in the Horseman that I wanted to talk about. Arn Anderson, I feel like uh, he he was one of the few guys, or I guess one of many guys, that never had the chance or the opportunity to be the main event, you know, for the shows because of Ric Flair and all that. Uh, I've been, you know, Beverly Hills and I've been watching some 96 Nitros and all that, and Aaron Anderson's been taken up with Ric Flair, with Chris Benoit, with Mongo McMichael, and against, like, the Rock and Roll Express, against American Males, and those matches were probably the best match on Nitro for that edition. I guess what things did Aaron Anderson have that made him one of the best enforcers, one of the best backups to Ric Flair and... Guess what factors do you feel like held Arn Anderson back from having a world title run? Well, first thing, you know what's funny is if you think about the history of wrestling, uh, of pretty boys with bodyguards and force type guys, I think of Shawn Michaels and Diesel, um, you know, Brian Kendrick with Ezekiel Jackson, you know, the, the enforcer or the muscle always towered above, you know, the pretty boy guy. Arn didn't have that. Arn had this natural toughness that came to him. And when you saw him in the ring, he was so crisp. And every single move looked like it was going to kill the guy. I mean, he was just so... It was like watching a surgeon dissect something. It was just so precise and so clean that he didn't have to be the big guy. He didn't have to be the toughest guy. You know, I think Arn's biggest thing that held him back was he didn't have that great look during the 80s when you had to have that look to be the world champion or you had to have that extreme charisma to be the world champion. You know, the only guy that I can think of that got a world title run that kind of fit in Arn's category was rugged Ronnie Garvin. You know, but you think of guys like Hulk Hogan, Macho Man Savage, the Ultimate Warrior, you know, even Sergeant Slaughter briefly. You know, in WWE, you look at NWA with like Sting and Ric Flair and Lex Luger. You know, they all had a look. Arn didn't. Arn had that every guy kind of look. But I think that's what made people want to watch him was because he looked like just that little tough badass that we all knew. But you know, he just played the sidekick so perfectly. And I don't think Arn really cared to be the world champion. I don't think he really had that burning desire to be the top guy, but he loved the role he was in and he embraced it. And 
if you listen to Arn Anderson promos, go back to the mid eighties and, 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 and mid to late eighties. Arn's promos were so deliberate and methodical, but he was so intelligent and would use such verbose words that you know it just seemed like he knew exactly what he was going to do. He went to the ring and he did it. And that gave him that believability factor where he didn't have to be six foot nine, 300 pounds to be the enforcer. He could do it at six foot 250, and people bought in because he just had that natural mean streak about him that, once again, it's, it's not something you can manufacture. You just look like a tough guy that can beat people up no matter what size you are. Arn had that gift. You mentioned Arn Anderson as a badass, and I feel like the Attitude Era's badass has to be Stone Cold Steve Austin. I feel like Austin was always a natty's version of Dusty Rhodes being a blue-collared, beer-drinking asshole be that flicked off his boss and tried to give him a Stone Cold Stunner every Monday night. What things did Stone Cold have that connected with the fans back in the Attitude Era? Well, the thing is, like, I watched Stone Cold Steve Austin back in USWA when he was stunning Steve. You know, and the funny thing is, people don't really know this. You know, Austin's real name is Steve Williams. And he couldn't be Steve Williams because there was already Dr. Death Steve Williams. So they gave him the name Austin, the $6 million man, that whole thing. But it was always kind of funny to me because I knew he was from Texas, but he kept presenting himself as this, you know, bleach blonde California guy. And it wasn't until the, a little bit of the ECW time there and then early on in WWE where he, he actually started to be more of himself. And once the whole, you know, Austin 316 at the, at the King of the Ring in 90. 96. 96. When that happened, you really felt like he was being genuine. Like, that's who he naturally was, was this, like, rough, tough guy that just wanted to beat people up. And and that's started to come through. And that's one of the things people look for. You know, I, I talk about Ric Flair and living the gimmick. You know, you you want to present yourself that you're believable, that who you are on TV is who you are in real life because it makes you connect to the audience more because the audience can go, you know, that's the kind of guy I would hang out with, or that's the kind of guy I would want on my side in a fight. And then Austin presented himself that way. And it really connected. And then once you got into the McMahon stuff, you know, we've all had bosses we've hated. We've all had bosses that we wanted to just punch the crap out of. And here it was on TV. Here's this guy that we can all relate to being a tough blue collar guy you know, flipping his boss off and beating him up, you know, and then the boss coming back and trying to upend him. So he has to fight harder. We've all felt like it was us against the machine. And then Austin McMahon was the real life presentation of the working man versus the machine. And that's why it connected so well to the audience and, and really drew them in. And then you could take that and spin it off against any one of these other characters and go, oh, I know a cocky, arrogant guy like The Rock. Or I know this, like, you know, up or this little, you know, punk kid like Triple H was, or I know a crazy guy like Mick Foley. You could then take that character who you felt like you could relate to and put him against any of those other guys, and we would buy into it because Austin was fighting for all the fans, and that's how he connected. I feel like if Austin was, I guess, uh, Dusty Rhodes of the 90s, in ways, I feel like The Rock could be the Roddy Piper in the ways of the Attitude Era as well, in the ways that he can look at the crowd, raise an eyebrow, and 
get their attention, get them to pop one way or the other. The, you know, the next guy is obviously The Rock. You know, the just like Piper and Austin and Rhodes, that The Rock can electrify the audience at home and in the arena with every single word that he puts out on the mic. And I don't know what other guy in the Attitude Era could use an elbow drop as a finish maneuver other than The Rock. You know, it's funny is I, I, I was watching something on YouTube the other day, and it was like the the top five worst finishers of all time, and Hogan's leg drop was number one because it's like it's a leg drop. How is that believable? I'm like, how is The Rock's elbow not in the top five if you put Hogan's leg drop in? Because it's just an elbow drop, you know? You, you, you go back and you look at, you know, I was listening to Jerry Lawler talk the other day, talking about, the, you know, the night he had his heart attack. Dolph Ziggler dropped ten elbows on Jerry Lawler. But yet, The Rock could drop one elbow and beat somebody. But The Rock's the, the fact that that guy went from being Rocky Maivia, and I still remember his debut at SummerSlam when he came out smiling and happy with that weird Jerry curl haircut and that weird it was like a it was like Macho Man met the Samoans type outfit where it was like streamers, but it had that like green and blue color to it. And that guy became The Rock is 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 just incredible to me because you you couldn't say that guy is going to be the most electrifying person in wrestling during the nineties. And he had the ability to grab an audience. He was to me, you talk about Piper to me, he was a combination of Ric Flair and dusty Rhodes because dusty didn't talk like anybody else did. And, and the rock didn't because the rock was using such kind of weird slang terms that nobody like, you know, insider terms, you know, inside wrestling, we knew what a jabroni was, Yeah, but, the casual fan didn't know what a jabroni was, you know, the SmackDown hotel, you know, all that, all the stuff the rock came up with was stuff that like dusty would do in the eighties. But, you know, he was able to be flashy and arrogant like Ric Flair, but charismatic like dusty and, and combine those two things and, and really make his own creation, you know, my only problem with The Rock over the years, and, and I brought this up on our show not too long ago, was or with, with you guys actually, was The Rock never, once he got into his mode, he never really evolved out of that. You know, The Rock's kind of been The Rock ever since he became The Rock. You know, here it is 20 years later, and he still does kind of the same catchphrases and stuff. Yeah, the, that, there really isn't much of an evolution of the character for The Rock. But during that time, during the Attitude Era, I mean, he was so different from everybody else. And saying things so differently than everybody else that it jumped out on screen from you. And he just had that it factor and that wow factor that nobody else had. And that's what made him really just kind of pop, like I said, pop off the screen and make people tune in to watch. I feel like somebody that makes people tune in to watch and ways it evolves with the times is Triple H. That. The WWE just put out the documentary, The Click Rules, and Triple H was also one of the one of the twenty percent of the Click, one fifth of the guys. And I feel like, feel like Triple H in a way is what's Attitude Era's Ric Flair in a sense that he was the guy that people wanted to put their money down to see The Rock, to see Steve Austin, to see The Undertaker, Shawn Michaels come in and you know kick his teeth on his throat because. Uh, the things he was saying, you know, drugging Stephanie McMahon to get her to marry her or taking out your best friend, you know, when, when, after he comes back and you guys want to reform your 
your group from like five years prior. What things, what things do you see in Triple H that people might shout on him nowadays that you know that to be considered as one of the greats? You know, I, I, it's funny because I remember you know you go back five years. Everybody universally, every smart mark, podcast, internet guy, we all hate a Triple H. We all think Triple H buried guys, didn't give guys the right credit. Here's five years later, and you have a you know a product like NXT. You have the women's division getting better, the tag team division getting better, and we all go, "Wow, Triple H gets it." And Triple H idolized Ric Flair, and like you said, that's why he's a great comparison to Flair. I mean, he's mentally. He has the ability to read an audience and know what the audience wants to respond to, whether it was the Hunter Hearst Helmsley Blue Blood, Triple H and DX, Triple H with the, the corporation, you know, Triple H, you know, being the cerebral assassin. You know, he could play the cowardly heel. He could play the badass heel. He could play the conquering hero. He was a jack of all trades. Do when I look at the great wrestlers of all time, like the pure, like the, the you know, if you have a top 10, do I put Triple H in my top 10 wrestlers of all time? No, but he was a Swiss army knife. He was that perfect guy that you could put him against the rock and it would work. You could put him against Austin and it would work. You could put him against Mick Foley, it would work. Undertaker, it would work. Ken Shamrock, it would work. He could be that perfect counterpoint to any guy you put him in the ring with. He was above average on the mic. He was one of those guys. He's really good at everything, but he didn't excel at any one area. You know, I don't think people say he's the best, you know, is he best five, top five all-time promo? No. Top five all-time in-ring? No. Top, top five all-time uh, in it factor, wow factor, whatever you want to call it? No. But he was really good at all those things, and I think that's why people kind of under, they might underestimate his value, but if you look at the last 20 years, how many stars he's helped make based on working against him, that's why he's one of the best. Something I just thought of, do you feel like Triple H is a modern equivalent to Arn Anderson? In a lot of ways, yes. Um, I think he's kind of a blend of Flair and Triple H, or Flair and Anderson. To me, like when he was the sidekick in DX, he was perfect in the role of sidekick. When they first formed DX and they first put him right there at the front and center, I don't think he was ready for it. And I think that's why for a long time he kind of languished in the mid-card. DX, people forget, kind of was kind of mid-card faction for a long time, you know, because the nation hadn't really elevated. You know, Austin was feeling McMahon. You had Undertaker. You had, you know, you had Mankind at the top of the card. And then Rock and Triple H are kind of there in the middle ground, fighting for the Intercontinental title, stuff like that. It took a while for them to kind of grow into their roles and really elevate themselves. I think Triple H always wanted to be at the top of the card, where I think Arn was happy being in the middle. You know, to me, Triple H, the best comparison I came with Triple H was Rick Rude in a lot of ways, in the fact that he could main event, but he was never going to be the best guy on the card. But you always wanted to see Rick Rude fight the good guy because, A, you knew you were going to get a great match, and he had that look and that presence about him that made it believable that he could be the top heel without actually being the top heel. And one guy that captivated my heart back in the day when he was around was Shawn Michaels. That I feel like that, especially 
after he came back against Triple H at SummerSlam 2002, was around for seven great years or so. I don't, yeah, I don't know if we're a lot of people, a lot of fans, and a lot of wrestlers would be if it wasn't for Shawn Michaels that he had, you know, great matches with you know take with Marty Jannetty up you know up to him having the match with Steve Austin at WrestleMania 14 to matches with Chris Jericho in 2008 and uh, two awesome WrestleMania matches with The Undertaker. What things does Shawn Michaels have throughout his career that that you believe to? Oh yeah, what things does Shawn Michaels have that to be considered one of the greats? Well, you know, we talk about the you know, Shawn could get on a microphone and get your attention, whether it was, you know, when the when the Rockers broke up. Now that was the big thing. You know, it took a lot of faith in WWE to break up the Rockers because they were a, a very solid, you know, if not great tag team. And they had the foresight to look at those two guys and go, all right, we're putting our money with Sean. You know, Marty Jannetty was is, was a very capable wrestler and, a, you know, the, an integral part of that tag team. But they looked at Sean and said, he's our guy that we can make money with. And they gave him a chance. And he grabbed that heartbreak kid gimmick and ran with it and made it his own and made it believable that that's who he was, that brash, young, cocky, arrogant kid that we all wanted to see get beat up. And to me, Shawn Michaels was Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat rolled into one. He had the ability to grab a microphone and women loved him. Guys hated him. But in the ring, his in-ring ability was like second. It was just so good that you had to watch it. And a lot of it was about the selling. He would sell his ass off and make everything look so great that you thought he was going to die in the ring, basically. And then the ability to come back, you know, that the Iron Man match with Bret Hart, it, it, to me, I, you watch that match now, it's still incredible because both those guys look like they died in the ring. I mean, sweat pouring off of them, dehydrated looking, and then to go 60, 65 minutes roughly, you know, for the world title, it was just incredible. And to this day, he's still the best in-ring performer I have ever seen in my life as a wrestling fan. The next guy I like to talk about doesn't need to go an hour in the ring. And to give you some crap, Captain isn't an ass man. He is Brock Lesnar. I feel like Brock Lesnar brought a lot of um, credentials back to professional wrestling with what he did outside of professional wrestling with the UFC that tempted the Vikings in his college career. Brock Lesnar, I feel like, brought also a lot of, of, of believability to pro wrestling when he came back. Was it uh, after WrestleMania 27, 28, somewhere after 28? Oh. What things does Bro- does Brock Lesnar bring to the table to debate into the debate that he is one of the greatest wrestlers? Um, the first Brock. The great thing about Brock is Brock knows who he is. Like Brock knows, you know, physically he might be the greatest athlete ever in wrestling for a guy that size to be as agile as he is as quick as he is and then the strength to back it up i mean you go back and watch some of his early stuff with you know back in the early 2000s with kurt angle you know going for freaking shooting star press i mean that's a guy who's like six like six six and nearly 300 pounds a shooting star press that's what a kind of athlete brock lesnar is but brock knows his limitations brock is not a great talker that's why he has paul Heyman, and i think that part of him 
makes it great because he's like, okay, I can kick ass in the ring. I can make it look believable. I can suplex or, you know, throw anybody around the ring, but I can't talk. So he has Paul Heyman. And that to me is a mark of, of genius in a sense that knowing your strengths, knowing your weaknesses, minimize your weakness and showcase your strengths. And Brock does that better than anybody else in a long time that he doesn't even try. He's like, screw it. I don't need to talk. I got Paul. Paul can do all my talking. I ain't got to say much. You know, that's why I think when whatever they would break Paul and Brock apart, Brock's career would kind of struggle because when he would get on the microphone, people were like, eh, no, I don't really want to hear you talk. Just beat people up. And, and I think even WWE has realized that. And that's why they even now with with Brock kind of being a face, they haven't taken Paul Heyman away from him. They still use him to be that mouthpiece because Paul can draw people in to watch Brock beat people up. I think it's a great combination. And I think you can't mention Brock without mentioning Paul. And they're, they're Batman and Robin. I mean, they're Superman and whatever sidekick you want to link Superman with. They need each other. They're kind of like, um, you ever watched, did you ever watch Teenage Mutant Ninja, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Eric? Uh, back in like the mid-90s. You watched the cartoon? Yes. Do you remember the big muscle-bound guy that had the brain inside the stomach? Yeah, but I can't think of what his name is, though, offhand. To me, that's Paul and, that's Paul and Brock. I, don't, I think they're symbiotic. You, you can't have one without the other right now. They, they kind of go together. Like, you know, if Paul came out, you know, we saw that with when, when Lesnar went away and Paul Heyman tried to feud with CM Punk and had Ryback and Curtis Axel, it, it didn't really work. He needs Brock to be that muscle to back up whatever he says. And Brock needs Paul to be that brain, you know, that mouthpiece to get his points across. I, I think that, com- that that combination might be the greatest manager wrestler combination in, in, in the history of wrestling because they, they link up and they need each other so much to be successful. And apart, they struggle so much. So I think it's a great pairing, and I think that's one of the reasons why they're one of the top duos of all time. Now I'd like to start wrapping it back into Seth Rollins because of, because of time. There's two more guys I'd like to talk about with you, Captain Obvious. There's the two guys that are challenging Seth Rollins at Night of Champions 2015. John Cena, who's challenging Seth for the U.S. title, who is a hard worker. Ladies and children adore him. When the adults, adult males strive to boo him can, and, and can cut some decent promos. And the other guy is Stan, who's challenging Rollins for the WWE World Heavyweight title. Uh, Stan can be one, one guy fans could debate that never carried a company on his own own shoulders, that he can be an okay promo and can move up and down on what wrestler he's wrestling with on having a great match or a bad match. What qualities does respectively, respectively does John Cena and Stan have to be considered... Two of the great greatest professional wrestlers. Well, I'm a sort of Cena. Cena, you know, you can debate whether or not you like you like the John Cena character or not. I give the guy a ton of respect for being on top for over ten years, wrestling everybody that WWE has, ever, has brought in in that time. Uh, plus all the stuff he does outside the ring, you know. We've gone back and forth over the years in debate. Should he turn heel? Should he stay a face? Should he evolve his character? Should he not evolve his character? John Cena has been the Hulk Hogan of the 2000s. I mean, Hulk Hogan didn't change until he absolutely had to. John Cena doesn't have to change until he absolutely has to. You know, are we getting to that point where he may have to change? 
yeah, his time's kind of drawing close, and if he were to turn heel, it could ease it, it could ease his workload, you know, and he could have a much longer career like Hogan did in in, in WCW. But the guy has been able to put on great matches, well, or good, at least good matches with The Rock, Triple H, you know, Shawn Michaels, Kurt Angle. Brock Lesnar, Big Show, all its guys now is Seth Rollins, Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens. I mean, the guy has been a tremendous in-ring performer for 10 years. His promos, you know, yeah, they can be hokey at times. But so could The Rocks. You know, The Rock could, could kind of, you know, kind of ramble on and you're just like, wow, that's kind of cheesy. But, you know, we still loved him. I think the problem with John Cena is you've never seen him have an edge since he broke away from the rapper gimmick. And I think a lot of guys in my age range loved the the white boy rapper gimmick so much that it's kind of tainted us <clears throat> with the all American you know soldier looking boy. And I think that's why a lot of guys have a hard time dealing with Cena because he just seems so happy all the time. Like even when he's mad at somebody, like Rollins broke his nose, he came out and just talked matter of factly about it. I'm sorry if somebody breaks my nose, I'm bringing a baseball bat or something down the ring to bust you up for what you did to me. And I think that's why guys have a hard time with him. Kids love him because he's colorful and he's patriotic and he's their modern day superhero. Women love him because he's clean cut, good looking. That's just who he is. Um, when it comes to Sting, you know, when people say he's never carried a company on his back, I, I tell people go back and watch WCW '97 because when he became the Crow, he carried the company on his back without wrestling a match. He didn't wrestle a match for over a year. And we still tuned in every single night to see what he was going to do. He carried a company for a year without wrestling a match. Who else has done that? Undertaker doesn't do that. He wrestles one match a year, doesn't carry the company, though. Sting's persona and his charisma kind of comes through the TV. Um, my only problem with him is at times when he's cutting promos, it does seem kind of he jumps back and forth from being very soft-spoken and very kind of methodical to other times he's overly he's too hyper you know there's not a middle ground with sting it's either one or it's the other um i have a problem with the angle he's currently shooting right now because i think it doesn't make any sense but the guy in the ring you know in his prime one of the best wrestlers he was a lot like rollins in the sense that he could physically strength wise match up with anybody and he was extremely agile and he couldn't do the top rope moves, but he was he could fly around a ring and do top rope dives and stuff like that. So, you know, one of the greatest athletes we've seen. And, and for a guy that used to be just a bodybuilder and running gyms to becoming one of the best pro wrestlers of the last 30 years, you got to give the guy a ton of credit for that. Oh, yeah. I like to come back and talk about the current product and to Seth Rollins. With where Seth Rollins' career has been to you know, nowadays to Night of Champions 2015, what things can we see see from him going into the future? You know, the one thing we got to see now is, you know, can he be a top baby face? You know, to me, one of the guys I admire the most over the last, you know, 15 years was Edge. Edge could jump from heel to face, heel to face, and no matter which side you were on, he could elicit a response. You know, people always make fun of Big Show from jumping from heel to face, heel to face. But a lot of times he kind of lands in that middle ground where people don't care as much. Edge, you always cared what side he was on. And I think if Rollins can do that, if Rollins can be a top babyface and then be a top heel and then be a top babyface and be a top heel, that will increase his longevity. I mean, right now, 
you look at him and you go, okay, he's got all the tools. He's got everything you want in a top guy, you know, but can he sustain it for a long time? He's got everything he needs because you look at who's on the top of the card right now, but then you also look at who's underneath. You know, we talk about Ambrose and Reigns. You talk about Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn, you know, Balor, you know, those guys, Dolph Ziggler, you know, those guys who are still kind of under in the mid-card era or area. Those guys are going to elevate at some point, and you know, Ron's has enough guys to kind of feed through to maintain his spot. Do I ever th- do I think he's going to ex- you know get to the point where he is elite level, best of all time charisma? I don't know yet, but he has all the tools to do it. It's just going to see if he can have a solid babyface run to see if he can actually make it into that upper echelon of the guys we discussed earlier. Yeah, I, I was just. Yeah, thinking about that with some of the things you mentioned about some of the guys we talked about earlier about their outfits, their evolving with the times, their mic ability, their charisma, living the gimmick and jack of all trades. I feel like we can start start to see some of that in Seth Rollins nowadays. It'd just be a matter of of if he can, you know, be uh Arn Anderson, be a Ric Flair, be a Dusty Rhodes, be a Triple H when he needs to be and with the guys who can play the you know play off of Seth Rollins when the timing is right. Yeah, but then you have to look at and, and, and wonder you know all the guys we mentioned, all these younger guys that are kind of in that lower mid card area, mid you know the guys I just named off. Can any of them step their game up to be that perfect foil? I mean, people kind of think Reigns can do it, and, and I think physically Reigns could do it. I mean, I, every, every girl I know that watches wrestling tells me how sexy Roman Reigns is, so he has. The, the look, he has the charisma, but can he push that through the TV? Like we talked about Dusty Rhodes. Can he, can he push that through to where guys like you and I, who are in our 20s and 30s, want to see Roman Reigns talk and beat people up? You know, Goldberg never really talked, but guys like us tuned in because he was an ass kicker. The problem with Reigns last year was when he talked, he sounded so ridiculous that it lost the believability factor. And I think that's, that's why people kind of transitioned over to being on the Ambrose side more than Reigns because Ambrose could talk your ear off. You know, can Kevin Owens do it? If Seth Rollins becomes a face, can Kevin Owens be that top heel guy to Seth Rollins? You know, can, but do we have anybody else who can kind of be, have that it factor to jump up and take the mantle to be that counterpart to Seth Rollins? Because every guy we mentioned earlier had a counterpart, had somebody to play off of, you know, Rollins doesn't really have that yet because nobody stepped up. I mean, the closest thing he's had is Dean Ambrose. You know, I don't know if anybody else has stepped up really to show that they're ready to take on that top tier guy and and take the mantle from John Cena, Daniel Bryan, the older guys that are kind of banged up and, and towards the end of their careers. I know you mentioned Roman Reigns, you know, a couple minutes ago and him not really being that great on the microphone. Could Roman Reigns take a lesson from Brock Lesnar and find a mouthpiece to help carry him to the, I guess, to the peak of his career and have somebody like a Paul Heyman do all the talking for when, when Roman Reigns could be the next Brock Lesnar and walk in the walk for Paul Heyman's talk in the talk? See, I don't think he needs a mouthpiece. Now, if he was going to do a heel run, then maybe he could use a mouthpiece, whether it was a Triple H or Paul Heyman or something like that. He could use one. 
I, I, long term, I don't think he needs one as bad as everybody else does. I think all he has to do is really find your inner voice. You know, you know, he's cousins with The Rock. The Rock, when first came to, t- to TV, not a great talker. Go back and look at like early Rock in the, in the Nation of Domination or when he was Rocky Maivia. Wasn't a great talker. You have to find your own voice, and you have to like be able to read the audience and, and understand what is going. What am I going to say that's going to help me connect to them? I think Reigns has it. I mean, the commercials he's cut, you know, some of the DVD stuff with like the you know the the, the one with the shield. When you listen to him talk, he does kind of exude that confidence or that swagger. It's just when he gets in a ring and grabs a microphone, now he seems nervous and like he's forcing it. You know, I mean, he literally said like dastardly, you know, last year. I mean, he, he sounded like Dudley Do Right at times, and that that doesn't seem like the kind of guy who's a twenty-five-year-old ass kicker. You know, you have to find your voice and and your manner of speech to really connect to the audience. And when he does that, he'll be fine. But until then, he's going to look like the muscle-bound sidekick for a lot of times. And that's the whole thing with Ambrose and Rollins when they were feuding. I thought it was weird to have Reigns being Ambrose's sidekick through that because this was a guy you were positioning to be the next John Cena, and now he's in a sidekick role. It doesn't make sense. You know, Ambrose and Reigns have the it factor that either one of those guys could be the top guy in the company and work off of Seth Rollins. You know, they just need a chance and to find their voice and their calling, and they can do it. Now, a question that I've been pondering last week or so after we set up to podcast today that I want to get your thoughts on. Could Seth Rollins carry the WWE into the next decade, replacing John Cena when the time is right? That's that's a good question. Um, Could he be the next John Cena? No, because he doesn't have the look. That John Cena. I mean, you look at Hulk Hogan, you look at John Cena, um, Kurt Angle, when Kurt Angle carried the company for a little while, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Rollins has the look of being the number two guy. Um, right now, he's kind of forced into the top heel spot because there's nobody else really to, ready to take that spot. Um, to me, he he's that guy. He's Edge. I don't. I, everybody keeps comparing. I, to me, he's Edge. Same body type. Same kind of demeanor, that rock and roll kind of look to him. Edge was never the top guy, but he always worked the top guys. Much like Triple H, never really the top guy. Even when you're world champion, there was always somebody more popular than he was. You know, that's Rollins' role. I think that will be fine. They just have to find somebody else that, by using Rollins, elevates them into that top spot and becomes that face of the company. But Rollins, I think, is going to be the number two guy for this company. I mean, he's Randy. He's he's Randy Orton. If we can find a new John Cena, you know, he's he's Piper. If we can find a new Hogan, you know, he's he's what you want to have to build a top star. We just got to find a top star to build him. I know you mentioned you know Piper and and all that. Do you feel like Seth Rollins, in ways, is the modern equivalent to Arn Anderson? On being a good second and all that. Well, you know, when I say good second, I mean... Well, like a good heel to a, the top baby face. Well, see, Arn was never the top heel. That's the thing. Arn is best in the sidekick in a group role. That's what I meant by. He's okay, he's yeah. perfect role as being the sidekick to somebody. Um, I don't think Rollins... Rollins is fine where he's at. Like, Edge was never a sidekick once they got out of the brood. 
you know, Triple H was never the sidekick once Shawn Michaels retired. That's the kind of guy Seth Rollins is, where he's never going to be the most popular guy in the company. You know, there's always going to be somebody that the fans gravitate to a little bit more because there's he doesn't have quite the it factor that other guys have. But he's the perfect foil for whoever has the it factor because he's believable in the ring. He has the moveset. He has the dynamics of, you know, the athleticism. He's showing the strength. He has all the make. Like, if you want to build a pro wrestler, you you build a guy like Seth Rollins. You build a guy like Randy Orton. Randy Orton and Seth Rollins are, are mirror image of each other in, in a lot of ways because Randy Orton's never been the top guy in WWE in the last 10 years. He's never been the face of the company. There's always somebody they were building off of Randy Orton, but it was never Randy Orton. And that's what I mean by that. Okay, then uh, besides Seth Rollins, what other great wrestlers in the making can you foresee, if any? Uh, I mean, I love Kevin Owens. I I love him. I think personality-wise, I think he might be the most dynamic talker in WWE because he he elicits a response. Whether you love him or you hate him, he elicits a response. And Dean Ambrose in the same way. Those two guys... Um, you know, are they Stone Cold Steve Austin? No, not yet. Could Ambrose eventually become a guy like Austin that you you kind of you can almost build a company around because he's not the biggest guy, he's not the best look, but he's tough, he talks, and he can have a great match. And you always feel like no matter what he's no matter who he's wrestling, there's a chance he can win and a chance he can lose. And that's why we watch wrestling because we don't know what's going to happen. You know, um, that was always a problem with Hogan. You know, that, that, that was, you know, people look at Hogan and they're like, oh, well, he was bigger than everybody else. But his matches always made you believe that there was a chance he could lose. Cena hasn't done that really until lately, the last, you know, year and a year and a half. That believability factor has come back. But for the previous nine years, he was wrestling somebody, you kind of knew he was going to win. You know, Undertaker, even though you knew he was going to win, he could make the match believable. You know, Ambrose has the believability factor. Owens has that believability factor. Reigns has it if he can find a voice. Uh, Bray Wyatt has it in spades. Bray Wyatt is incredible. Maybe the best talker in WWE in the last 10 years. Um, You just got to wonder if his body will hold up because him and Owens have a very similar body type. It's not really conducive to wrestling, but they're well-conditioned for big guys. But, I mean, if you could tell me in, in two years we could be main eventing Kevin Owens versus Bray Wyatt and those promos between those two guys would be incredible. And then you factor in Ambrose, Rollins, Reigns. You know, if Dolph Ziggler could ever find his voice, if Cesaro could learn to talk a little bit more, you know, those six guys right there, I'd be happy to watch those six guys work against each other for the next ten years. Captain, how can people find you on social media? Uh, you can go on Twitter, find me there at Captain OMG. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, my regular Facebook page, Captain Obvious 3D, my wrestling manager page, Facebook.com slash Dr. Trey Franklin, I believe, or just search Dr. Trey Franklin, because I'm the only one on Facebook that doesn't look like an actual doctor. Um, or you can go on Instagram and follow my travels as I per- as I uh, go throughout the country. Uh, the Captain's Beard, all one word. Uh, was just in your neck of the woods in Iowa. I'm headed down to Tampa, Florida this week. After that, I'm headed to Pittsburgh. So I'm all over the place. So 
those right there are the best ways to get a hold of me. And then you can hit me up on uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash the steel real to us show, or go on iTunes and search for the steel real to us show. And you can listen to our podcast there as well. You mentioned Iowa. Is there anything good that came out of Iowa besides Seth Rollins? Um, does the TV show coach count? Cause I don't think that was actually, I know it was Minnesota, but I think it was actually filmed in Iowa. Well, I guess we can say that TV show coach can be another thing too, I suppose. And, and a lot of corn. I mean, honestly, uh, this is going to sound really, I got confused by the gas pumps in Iowa <laughs> because everything there is ethanol. I mean, they run ethanol and so much stuff, but regular gas costs more than super. It made no sense. I was completely confused. I didn't know how to pump gas in Iowa. I needed a handbook, and nobody was there to give me one. And you guys can also listen to this podcast, Mid-Event Status Radio, on our website, mideventstatus.com, on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash Radio. We are on iTunes, just like the Still Real to Us show. Subscribe to us there, rate us, review us, help us move up, move up on the charts. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash Radio. You can hit me up on Twitter at DirtyDogMES. That's dog as in D-A-W-G, at DirtyDogMES on the Twitter. And Captain, I love some Captain's closing comments on this edition of Mid-Event Status Radio. Oh, wow. Closing comments. I haven't done this in a long time, so let me think about this for just a second. Um, what happened this week? Oh, I got stranded in Indiana, in Indianapolis, Indiana. I was stranded because ran out of money, got paid late. And I thought about it as I was sitting in my car for 30 hours, just sitting there and realized that in life, no matter what happens, you're going to get dealt a crappy hand at times. And I could have sat there and got on social media and just ranted and raved and vented and done all these things. But then I thought about it. If I can get through this, I can get through anything. So it's, you know, like the old adage said, like the old adage goes, it's not how many times you get knocked down, it's how many times you get back up. So when life hands you like a dirty set of cards, play the cards you get dealt, and then just move on to the next hand, and then you can come out on top. For Captain Obvious, I'm the Dirty Dog Darcy. Adios, main adventures. That was amazing. You should get get much more time than anyone else. That is our show. Good night, everybody. That's so good.